0: Well, good morning. My name is Gary Weber. I'm the pastor here at Southside, and I'm delighted to be with you today, and I'm glad that you are here to join us for worship. If you're a guest, again, we're so delighted to have you. Uh, This morning, I would like to talk to you uh, about proximity and its relationship to intimacy. And I can think of no better way to demonstrate that uh, than this. As I'm talking to you, suddenly this conversation gets really intimate, (laughs) As I come near to you. Now, some of you may remember if you were in school, uh, you may have had a teacher when there was a student misbehaving who wasn't you, by the way. When there was another student who was misbehaving, that teacher, if they were really good at managing the classroom, uh, might just walk down and stand next to a particular student and maybe even take their hand and put their hand on that student's shoulder. And not necessarily say anything to the student, but just the proximity to that student had an influence on the student's behavior. Now some of you, it suddenly makes a lot more sense why your teacher always stood so close to your desk. Maybe you figured that out. This is, this is called what educators call proximity control. In other words, you manage the behavior in the room based on the proximity of the teacher to the misbehaving student. You, you sort of close the gap between and try to increase uh, the student's attention as they're maybe paying attention to you where they're close. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or, or considered this or not, but religion is a form of proximity control. I don't know if you've maybe considered that, but when you come here to church, um, you're just a little more aware of your behavior. If you are out in public and you're maybe with other believers, other people who you know are Christians, you might just be a little bit more aware of the words you choose. You might have a little better filter. I know you don't want to admit this in church, but it's true, I know. So you you kind of, proximity control, religion forms a little bit of, of proximity control for us. As we're near the things that remind us about God remind us of God's people, remind us of the things that we say we believe, the morals that we say we hold on to, the more we're aware of those kind of things, the more we suddenly are, are, are mindful of our behavior, mindful of our thoughts, mindful of the way uh, that we respond. This, of course, reveals a real misunderstanding about the nature and the character of God, Because if you believe in God at all, you believe that God is everywhere. He doesn't just stay here in this building when you gather on a Sunday for a religious service. And he's not just in the presence of the other people who share your belief system. So if you happen to work with other believers or go to school with other believers, God is everywhere. And so when religion kind of reminds us of that, we're suddenly made aware when we're in church or when we're with other believers. We're suddenly aware, oh yeah, God's watching me. I better make sure I behave a certain way. This this is a problem because ultimately what God wants from you is not proximity. God's got proximity. God is everywhere. There's no place that God isn't. God is with you. God is there. What God desires is intimacy with you. And you were designed, every human being was designed for intimacy with God. It's the deepest longing of our heart is to find connection with our creator, with the one who made us. When you read the Bible, if you open up to the very first few pages, you see a beautiful story, a beautiful portrait of what it looked like when man and God were united in intimacy. You see Adam and Eve as they walk together in the garden, and God is with them. And, and, and you see this beautiful picture, but you only get just a little way into the Bible, and suddenly that is disrupted, And what was a beautiful portrait of intimacy becomes a picture of brokenness. And there's a distance that happens between God and man, but also between people. There there begins to be problems with people. But the human heart was designed for intimacy with God. And so, as humans, we continue to seek after intimacy. And we try to find it anywhere we can to, to satisfy what is the deepest longing In our heart. And we tend to do it in two basic ways. People tend to take two basic routes when they seek to find intimacy, they'll try to find it through irreligious ways. In other words, we may try to find it by um, by trying to satisfy a deep longing of our heart uh, for knowledge. And so we pursue knowledge. Or we try to find it through relationships. And so we might pursue relationships with other people. Or maybe it's through power or through fame or through money. The, The problem with all of those approaches to pursuing something to satisfy the deepest need of our soul is they're never enough, are they? Some of you have made a lot of money. And you still had that aching inside of you. There was never quite enough money. There's never quite enough security for my retirement. Some of you tried to find it through relationships. And so maybe you, you found it in somebody and that person uh, has, 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 plays a significant part in your life. But there have been moments when even that person, as much as they love you, as much as they're devoted to you, they don't quite meet the deepest needs in your heart. So we seek after intimacy, and and as we get closer to it, the longing only seems to increase. It's similar to the fact that if you're a sports person and you enjoy playing sports, maybe you play team sports, you know, when you begin to win, what do you want to keep doing? You want to keep winning. You want to keep accomplishing more. So you begin to win and you want to win more and more. And the closer you get to the championship, the more you crave the championship. And then as you're playing in those tournament games, you're craving that ultimate game. And then you win the championship. And what's the first thing that your coach says? we got to get ready for next season. It's never quite enough, is it? We're always longing for something just a little bit more. If you're a musician... And you love to play an instrument, or you love to sing, or you love good music, your music is never quite good enough. You go into the practice room and you practice and you practice and you perform, and you're your own worst critic. You always find a way that I can be better, I can be better. And so you go back to the practice room and you're constantly pursuing something that always seems to elude you. There's something, a longing inside of you. And the closer you get to it, the closer you come to it in proximity, the greater the dissatisfaction in whatever gap there may be between you and whatever that thing that you're looking for is. Another thing about intimacy is the closer we get to something, the greater the loss we feel when it's gone. Have you ever, you ever noticed that, that, that losing the first game of a baseball season isn't that big a deal? But losing game seven of the World Series, that hurts pretty bad, doesn't it? I could imagine, I've never run for political office, but I could imagine that it's much harder to lose the general election than it is to lose the primary election. The closer you get to something, the more you want it, and the greater the pain of the loss of whatever it is that you're trying to get to, whatever it is you're trying to lose. I'll give you another example of that. In your own life, the people that you are closest to, when you've lost them, maybe they've they've died, that pain is acute. You still feel that even today. But you can open up the paper and you can read in the obituary section about the death of lots of people. You don't feel the same pain as it relates to them because it has to do with your proximity to that person and the level of intimacy that you have with that person. But here's what we need to understand. That proximity with God is no substitute for intimacy with God. I can be close in proximity to someone and not intimate with someone. There are people around you right now. You're sitting next to them. Some of them you know, and you may say, I have an intimate relationship with this person. But there are other people, maybe sitting in front of you, or behind you, or to the opposite side of you. You don't know them at all, and your proximity to that person doesn't necessarily mean that you have an intimate relationship with them. Also, in reverse of that, there are people that you feel deeply connected to who are far away from you right now. Maybe they're in another state, maybe they're even in another country. So proximity doesn't always mean intimacy, although proximity sort of increases our desire for intimacy. The last several weeks, we've been talking about worship. What does it mean to really love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all of our strength? What does it look like to truly worship him? We started the conversation out with a picture, a, a scene that took place in the Bible, an incredibly intimate moment, where a woman who was so overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus had done for her brother, that he that she came into his presence and she broke a jar of an expensive perfume and she poured it out on his feet and she let down her hair in front of this mixed crowd of people and she began to wash Jesus feet with her hair. And Everybody who was in the room who saw this was shocked. I mean, they were disturbed by this. They didn't like this. They even reprimanded her. And then last week, we saw another incredibly intimate portrait where Jesus took off his clothes, and he came around his disciples, and he began to wash their feet. Many of the same people who had witnessed this woman washed Jesus' feet, were now on the receiving end as Jesus washed their feet. And they were incredibly close. They were in such close proximity to him as he touched their feet and washed their feet. We started this conversation several weeks ago at a dinner party. And we looked at the response of three people to Jesus. And we're going to end the conversation today with another dinner party. With these same 12 people people around Jesus, and we're going to look at the response of three of them to Jesus. All of them were in close proximity to Jesus. The three people that we're going to look at were in very close proximity to Jesus, but two of these three people confused proximity to Jesus with intimacy with Jesus, and the consequences were devastating. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with us to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. I'll begin in verse 21. John chapter 13, verse 21. There's a Bible in front of you. We'll also put the verses on the screen. If you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we invite you to take that Bible in front of you with you as our gift to you. John chapter 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. Now you've got to remember what has just happened. Jesus has just washed their feet and then he follows that up by saying, one of you, one of you that that just shared this intimate moment with me, you're going to betray me. And, and, And they're all thinking to themselves, could it be me? They've just been in the Closest proximity they can to Jesus. The most intimate moment as he was washing their feet. And in the proximity to that selfless act, they were suddenly very aware of their own self-centeredness. Why didn't I wash everybody's feet? I mean, we came into this room and everybody's feet needed to be washed. There was no servant in the house to wash the feet. Why didn't I do it? I should have done it. I knew I should have done it and they didn't do it. But when confronted with Jesus' selflessness... They were so aware of their self-centeredness that suddenly they thought, maybe I am the one who would betray him. Maybe I would do it. Mark tells us this in Mark 14, 19. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? They were all aware of the fact that it could be me. I could be the one who would betray him. And it made me think of a uh, just a, a general truth that, that I think is true in, in all areas of life. That you may never be in greater danger of betraying Jesus than when you are most confident that you would never betray Jesus. You may be in greater danger of compromising your beliefs and your morals when you have no doubt in your mind that you would never compromise your beliefs and your morals. This is, this is part of what we can, when we confuse proximity with intimacy, part of the danger that we get into we think, oh, I'm close to God. I go to church. I, I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. And, and you think, I could never happen to me. I could never veer off the path. But you may be in greater danger of doing just that when you are totally unaware that you ever could do it. And every disciple in that room in that moment realized, it could be me. It could be me. John 13, verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, "Lord, who is it?" Now, we know uh, from this passage that this disciple is John, the person who's writing this account to us. John was probably the youngest of all the disciples. Most people think he he may have been a teenager. So it would make sense that as the youngest man in the room, even a teenage boy, that Jesus would have probably drawn close to him. There was a special relationship. Uh, I think John, when he was writing that he was the disciple Jesus loved, probably had a little bit of a smile on his face as if to say to the other guys, yeah, he loved me more than he loves you. If, you're, if you've got, you come from a family with multiple kids, maybe you've teased each other that way. John refers to, him, to himself as the disciple Jesus loves. This is the first time, but he's going to refer to himself as the disciple Jesus Jesus loved several more times in the rest of the gospel so he's there he's sitting right next to jesus and he just leans back on jesus so there's a there's a physical closeness there's a physical proximity even a physical intimacy that they're sharing in that moment and he just leans back and he says who is it jesus now we know that simon peter is not sitting next to jesus Because Simon Peter had to ask John to ask Jesus. So Peter is somewhat removed from Jesus. Some of you may remember that the disciples had just gotten into an argument uh, not long before this about who got to sit on Jesus' right and his left. I think probably Jesus mixed it up. I don't know that Jesus was intentional about having maybe the most powerful or the most influential of the apostles sit next to him. I would suggest that perhaps he didn't do that. Otherwise, why would the youngest of the disciples be sitting right next to him? So Peter is there, but he's not next to Jesus. But there's another side to Jesus. If John is sitting on Jesus' left, who is it that's sitting on Jesus, right? I think we have a clue in the next verse. Verse 23. One of his disciples, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now we don't know for certain. But I think that probably Judas was sitting on the other side of Jesus. That John was on one side and Judas was on the other. This was a seat of honor, even if it was by chance that he was the one chosen to sit next to Jesus at the Passover. It was a seat of honor that he'd be next to Jesus. We know that Judas was perhaps the most trusted of all the apostles because he was the one who was in charge of taking care of the money, of tending the money for the entire group, so he was trusted. Uh, He had a seat of honor, and dipping a piece of bread into a dish and passing it to someone was a sign of special intimacy and special friendship. And so the person who was given the seat of honor and the sign of friendship was proven to be the most treacherous man in the room. Do not confuse proximity with God with intimacy with God. They're not the same. And something in Judas snapped. Something about this moment, this, and being in such close proximity to Jesus. Jesus had washed his feet. Jesus had given him this special sign of friendship by dipping the bread into the juice. Something inside of him snapped in that moment and he rejected Jesus and he surrendered control to this evil act of treachery that he was about to commit. The scripture goes on in verse 28. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Oh, John is such an incredible writer. Uh, Do do you catch that last phrase? Just those last four words, and it was night. Do you remember how John began this story? Very back at the beginning of John chapter 1, John says that Jesus came into the world and he was the light of the world, but men preferred darkness in John chapter 3 we saw Nicodemus a Pharisee coming to Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was asking these questions and now here in John chapter 13 as Judas is walking away from the light and leaving Jesus he steps out into the night into total darkness as he prepares to betray Jesus when he had gone out Jesus said now is the son of man glorified And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I now also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In other words, fellas, you're not always going to be able to enjoy living in such close proximity to me. There's coming a time where if you are substituting proximity for intimacy, you are going to be in trouble because I'm not going to always be with you. I'm not going to be this close to you. In just a few hours, I'm going to be arrested. You don't know that yet, but I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken away, and I'm going to be crucified, and I will not be with you, and your proximity will be no substitute for intimacy What God longs for is intimacy. What the human heart was designed for is intimacy. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? In other words, wherever you're going, I'm going there too. I want to be wherever you are, Jesus. And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And I can imagine Jesus smiled when Peter said that. So Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? You don't know this yet, Peter, but you're not going to lay down your life for me. In just a few hours, it's going to be me who is laying down his life for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Your proximity to me will not substitute for intimacy with me. When Luke told this story, Luke added a, a little bit more detail. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, Simon, Simon, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Does it surprise you? That love and betrayal can be so close to each other? Some of you, it doesn't surprise you. Because you've been betrayed by somebody you love deeply. They're that close. The proximity of glory and treachery, they're that close. There's not much separating the two things. And the thing that may be separating, the difference between the two, may be the difference between proximity and and intimacy. Look at the characters in this story. Let's just start with Judas. Judas' response to Jesus, who had walked with Jesus, been with Jesus for three years, heard all of Jesus' teachings, and we think, how could he have done this? What was it that Judas was after all along? What was it that Judas was pursuing? I would argue that Judas' response was an irreligious response, In other words, Judas was one who was seeking after selfish gain. He was looking for that, looking to satisfy the deepest longing of his heart by pursuing power and influence. You see, all of the disciples and many of the people who followed Jesus had this image in their mind of what it meant to have a Savior, to have a Messiah. That he would come as a military conqueror. That he would come into Jerusalem and that he'd kick out the Romans and that he had come to take over and that finally the nation of Israel would be reestablished, and there would be a sense of national pride that would be reasserted when the rightful king came and took his throne. The problem was that Jesus kept turning down the crown, the crowd kept trying to make him king, and he kept moving away. He kept saying things that would cause the crowd to diminish in size. He kept making the religious establishment mad. He kept saying things that seemed to run counter to everything that they expected the Messiah to be. And Judas was watching this week after week after week after week. And Jesus was not reacting the way a military Messiah should have reacted. And finally there was something inside of Judas that just snapped. We read about it at the beginning of John chapter 12 when Mary had taken that oil and poured it on Jesus' feet. Judas is the one who said to Mary, Mary, why did you waste that? It could have been given to the poor. And Jesus corrected Judas. And the scripture says it was at that moment that Judas decided he was going to betray Jesus. Something inside of him snapped. Because even though he had lived and walked in close proximity to Jesus, Jesus wasn't being the kind of Savior that Judas wanted him to be. Because what Judas was pursuing was an earthly solution to the longing of his heart. If we could just find power, if we could just find authority, if we could just have control, then my heart would be satisfied. But there's another response, Peter's response. Peter responded to the search for intimacy by promoting religion. Peter had correct theology. You remember when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? It was Peter who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. Peter said, I'm always right. I've got the right answers. I know good theology. It was always Peter who wanted to do the right thing. When Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses and Elijah were there, it was Peter who said, let's build an, a tabernacle. Let's build, a, let's build an altar to remember this place because that's what religious people do. We build altars. We build temples. We build churches. We build churches. Because if we can just substitute religion and our proximity for God, then somehow maybe we think God will be satisfied with that and maybe that'll satisfy the deepest need of our heart. Peter was looking for religion to satisfy that. But we know that it didn't. We know that ultimately, just what Jesus said would happen is in fact what happened. That Peter would deny Jesus three times. But there's another person in the room who I think gives us a picture of what it is that does satisfy the deepest need of our heart. And that is ultimately what God is seeking from us, and that's John. And that's true intimacy. Why why do I say that? Because John was sitting next to Jesus? Because John laid his head on Jesus' chest? No, it was more than that. Because in just a few hours, when all of the other disciples move away from Jesus as he's being crucified, when they're running away for their lives, when they're afraid of the religious authorities and the Roman authorities, guess who the only apostle is that stays at the foot of the cross? John, the youngest. He, his intimacy, his level of connection to Jesus was so deep that even at Jesus' hour of, of, of pain and, and, and what looked to the rest of the world like failure, John did not abandon him. And it was to John that Jesus said, behold your mother. In other words, take care of my mom after I'm gone. There was a deep and intimate relationship that existed between John and Jesus. Now, what what does that mean for us here? 2,000 years later, as you gather in this church, some of you have come into church because you are looking for proximity with God. And you think, if I can just... Come to church, maybe I'll hear something, maybe I'll experience something, maybe I'll catch sight of God, maybe I'll understand God in some way. But what you need to know is that while coming here may open you up and make you aware of God, and it's a good thing your attendance here today does not necessarily mean that you are in an intimate relationship with God, a satisfying relationship with God. Come on, some of you go to church all the time. You you, you read your Bible all the time. And there are still those moments where it doesn't satisfy the longing of your heart. It actually only frustrates you more. Why is that? Because proximity with God is not the same as intimacy with God. So let me talk to two groups who are are here today. First, to those of you who assume that you are close to God. However you define that. Maybe that's through your religious practice. Maybe that's through your moral behavior. Maybe that's through your rituals and your routines. But you assume that you are in close proximity to God. Let me just give you a warning. Watch out. Watch out. Because Peter thought that he was close to Jesus too. And he denied him. Judas lived close to Jesus for three years. And he betrayed him. Proximity does not mean Intimacy. Listen to what Peter said years later. Peter was an old man. He had, been, he had denied Jesus three times. Jesus had reinstated him. He had become the leader of the church. Listen to what he said as he's writing back to some younger Christians. 1 Peter 5 8, Be if sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Do you remember what Luke said? When, when, when Luke recorded the story, Luke said that Jesus told Peter, Satan is asking to sift you. He's asking to test you. Watch out, religious person. Your proximity doesn't necessarily mean intimacy. It reminds me of what Jesus told all the disciples in Matthew 26, 41, where he said, he said, watch and pray so that you may not fall into into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watch out. But there's another group here that I want to talk to And that's those of you who assume that you are far away from God. You assume that God is far away from you. Maybe, maybe you have moved away from God. Maybe you would say because of your choices, the decisions that you have made, maybe you would say that you are far away. You can't even see God. I mean, you're, you're not even really comfortable being here today because you would say that your heart is so far away. Maybe it's something that somebody else has done. And it's caused you to feel distant from God and that God is far away. Can I just tell you something? I think it's proven from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of God. If that is you, if that describes you today, you may be closer now than you've ever been. That there is no distance to which you can go that the arm of God is not longer still. God is not as far away as you think he is. When you read the stories of Jesus... It was always the irreligious people, the irreligious people, the pagans, the the Greeks, the the Romans, those people who we would look at and say they're far away from God. They always seemed to find their way to Jesus much easier than the religious people did. Do you remember the story that Jesus told? Um, It's a popular story. I'm sure you've heard it, the prodigal son. You remember that story? It's a story of two brothers, and these two brothers lived with their father, And the younger brother uh, decided that he wanted his inheritance. And he wanted to be able to go away and spend his father's inheritance and live life the way he wanted to live life. And so the father, shockingly, the father gave the younger son his portion of the inheritance. And so the younger son left and he squandered. The Bible tells us Jesus said he squandered his wealth. And then one day he woke up and he realized he woke up and he said, you know what, I am far away from my father. I need to go back to him. And so he comes back and the, Jesus tells a story, he says, that as the son made his way down the path, the father saw him at a distance. And then guess what the father did? He ran to him. That it was the father who closed the distance between the son and the And he put a robe on him, and he put a ring on his finger, and he put shoes on his feet, and he said, My son who was lost is now found. And he threw a big party for him. But there was another brother, there was another son who had never left. He had stayed in close proximity to his father all along. He had never squandered any money. He had never been immoral or behaved in a way that would displease the father. He had stayed right there the entire time. And guess what his response was when the younger brother came home? He was furious. He was put out. And he refused to go into the party. So in the end, it was the... Brother in close proximity to the Father who ended up being separated from the Father. And it was the son who had wandered far away who actually was welcomed in and received into this great celebration and party. If you believe that you are far away from God, you may be closer to him now than you've ever been before because proximity with God is not the same as intimacy with God. James, the brother of Jesus, Um, denied Jesus the entire time Jesus was preaching and teaching. he, He denied him. And it was only after Jesus was raised from the dead that James, Jesus' brother, believed. Because if your sibling claimed to be the Messiah, it would take a resurrection for you to believe that too. But James became a believer. And listen to what he said in James chapter 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you listen, I want you to do something. Everybody in the room today, right now, maybe, maybe it will take you longer than just these next few minutes. Maybe this is a question you need to think about for the next few days or weeks, and we would love to enter into a conversation with you about this, but I want to invite you to evaluate your relationship with God. Some of you might say, that's easy. I don't have one. Okay, that's an evaluation. Some of you would say, you know what, I'm in church all the time, but I'm I don't feel that intimacy with God. Maybe I felt it once in my life, but I don't feel it now. I want to ask you a question. Are you confusing proximity for intimacy? Is that what you're doing? Because you can come here week after week, you can sing all the songs, and you can read this book, and you can even pray and still be far away from God. But on the other hand, You may be far away from God. You may have regrets and failures and brokenness and perceive that God would never receive you, and yet God is that Father waiting. And if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Proximity to God is no substitute for intimacy. Will you pray with me? Father, we say things like you are always present. We talk about the fact that you are all-knowing. And yet we live as if somehow we can hide from you. I'm reminded of what the psalmist said when he said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I hide from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will find me. God, we so often confuse our proximity with you with intimacy. We build beautiful churches and cathedrals and we plan beautiful worship services in an effort to try to feel like we are near you, to make ourselves aware that you are here. And yet, Lord, maybe there are times where our religious activity fogs the deepest need of our heart and that for which you created us, which is intimacy with you. Father, everybody here today seeking something. And Lord, you stand as one who has offered us intimacy, a relationship with you. And you made that possible by coming and living among us. And Lord, we we seek to understand you, to know you, to draw near to you, Lord, not in religious activity or through irreligious pursuits, but, Father, through true intimacy. Father, I pray that as each of us take this time to evaluate our own hearts, that your Spirit would speak to us, that even though we're in the midst of a crowded room, maybe for just a few moments, we would contemplate that question. Have we confused proximity with intimacy? Speak to us now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.